uh, we're in a series entitled The One. And uh, it's about Jesus in that he's the one. And uh, this series is based on the idea and the understanding that the Old Testament promises something. I tell you this all the time. I say this constantly. The Old Testament makes a promise. And the New Testament keeps it. It fulfills that promise. And it deals with Jesus. And when you come to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew tells about the birth of Jesus. So does Luke. Those two guys tell the birth of Jesus, Matthew and Luke. And so you come to Matthew telling about the birth of Jesus. And he wrote probably around 60 AD, give or take a year or two. And Matthew, when he wrote, Christianity was moving to a place where it was becoming more and more Gentile. There were, there were Jewish Christians for sure. But the Jews as a people, as a group, had rejected Jesus. And, uh, and so that number was decreasing from a percentage standpoint and just more and more it was becoming Gentile. And Matthew was concerned. He wanted to be sure that his people understood and that as, that as they rejected Jesus, they were rejecting the only one. And so he and his gospel goes to great lengths to show that all they had looked for in the Messiah, all they had ever wanted in the Messiah, all they ever hoped for in the Messiah, Jesus was the one. And so as I have kind of shared with you in, in this series, the main theme that I wanted to get across in this series is that in Jesus... God kept his promise. He is the one. Jesus is the one that fulfills everything. So as we've seen, you know, so far in Matthew chapter 1, we're going to finish up chapter 1 today and tomorrow. I mean, next Sunday we'll be in Genesis, uh, uh, we'll be in uh, Matthew chapter 2. What we have seen is that Jesus is the one who is the one. He, he, he looked at the genealogy of Jesus. He's the one that fulfills the expectations of the Messiah. We saw last week that he is the one who saves. We were in Matthew 18 uh, let's see, verse, chapter 1, verse 18 through 21. And today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, verses 23 through 25 to see that Jesus is the one who is God. And that this, is, this is of the messages, of these four messages for Christmas, the most doctrinal message. I mean, this is one that has the most theology or the most teaching in it. He is the one who is God. And what I want you to see today in this message is this. Because of who he is, that is his nature, Jesus is God. Because of who he is, because of his very nature, he is God. So I'm going to start today talking about uh, the virgin birth. In the Christian faith, there are four fundamental pillars of our faith, four truths upon which our faith absolutely stands. Two, you find at the very beginning of the Old Testament. Two are in the New Testament. And the two in the Old Testament continue throughout all of Scripture, but those two are this. The first pillar is the pillar of revelation, that God reveals himself to us. The only way we can even begin to know God or anything about God is that it reveals himself to, who, to us. His ultimate, final, and complete revelation is Jesus. So we believe that. The second pillar is creation. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And so we go back to the beginning and believe this. Before anything existed, there was God. That God created everything out of nothing. And so that, that doctrine is important to the Christian faith. We rise and fall on that being true. The other two doctrines are found in the New Testament. They are the doctrines of the incarnation and the resurrection. Incarnation means in the flesh. We believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. Resurrection is that God raised Jesus from the dead after his death. We, we, everything falls on that. Now, when we deal with the incarnation, we're dealing with the story of the birth of Jesus. And we're dealing with, in the virgin birth, not so much his birth, but his conception. We call it the virgin birth, and this will always call it, but really we're dealing with the actual conception of Jesus. So here's the thing to understand. The virgin birth 
our conception is the foundation of the Christmas story. I mean, the conception is the foundation of everything about Christmas. Now, at Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Jesus. At Easter, we celebrate, you know, the death and the resurrection. But both of those events are connected with the miraculous. The birth of Jesus, something supernatural happens before he was born at conception. At, at, the, at Easter, when we celebrate you know, we, the resurrection, what we're celebrating is the death, burial, and resurrection. The death is a natural death, but something supernatural occurs, the resurrection, which gives his death meaning. The birth of Jesus is Christmas. The death of Jesus in the resurrection is, is Easter. That's how we celebrate. Those are the two main celebrations of the Christian faith. And we really celebrate Christmas the most. I mean, think about Christmas. We start celebrating Christmas. I, I look at it this way. Christmas begins when basically the Dallas Cowboys report to camp, you know. know, So I know that, okay, the Cowboys are there. Christmas is going to come soon. We we, we celebrate it for a long time. Easter, it's like all of a sudden it's the week of Easter. And like, well, what are we doing? We got to do something. Where are we going? I mean, and yet those are both so important. One is not more important than the other. It's kind of, look at, think about water. Water is made up of H2O, two-part hydrogen, one-part oxygen. Hydrogen doesn't say to the oxygen, hey, I'm twice as important as you. They do that. I mean, I don't know if the elements talk to each other, so I'm making that assumption that that's, that's like, you know, that's fiction there. But we don't, we don't think, well, you know, we can do without the oxygen. We've got to have the hydrogen. No, you've got to have all of that. And it's the same way with Jesus. Here's the thing. His birth deals with his nature, who he is. His death deals with his work, what he did. So at the incarnation, we celebrate the who, at the resurrection, resurrection, we celebrate the what. They both matter. But here's the thing, and this is important. While both of them are needed for our salvation, who he is and what he did, at the moment of our salvation, we don't really have to believe in the virgin birth. What I, what I mean is this. When I share Jesus with people, I don't talk about the virgin birth. I always talk about the resurrection. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. When I share someone, Jesus, I want to make sure they understand the resurrection because they got to believe that. You can't say, well, you know, I'd like to follow Jesus. I think I will. I'm just not going to buy into the resurrection. Then you're not going to follow Jesus. But once you become a believer, once you become a follower, you need to believe in the virgin birth. I'll go so far as to say you have to believe in the virgin birth. It is fundamental to your salvation. You cannot deny it. All the early creeds of the faith acknowledged it. You can't come up to me and say, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't buy the virgin birth. And I'm going to say you're not a follower of Jesus. And you got a problem you need to fix. It matters that much. Last week, when we looked at the God or the one who saves, we started off in verses 18 through 21. When Joseph found that Mary was with child, he was going to put her away quietly, divorce her. An angel appeared to him and said, Joseph, don't do that. For the child within her has been conceived or is from the Holy Spirit. And I told you then, I'll deal with the Holy Spirit today and I will a little bit later. But that was important. And what he said is this. And because of this, you will name this child Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. The angel appeared and revealed something to us about Jesus. In verse 22, we pick up with the significance of what he said. Matthew, under the same leadership of the Holy Spirit, who was the one who was conceived Jesus, now leads Matthew to help us understand it. Here it is, verse 22. All this took place. All the things that happened 
to Joseph and Mary, all that the angel said, all of that took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. All of that occurred for a reason. The word to speaks of reason. There was a reason for all of that, to fulfill or bring something to completion. To me, something was satisfied. What was it? Something the prophet had said centuries before, under the Lord's guidance, that thing the prophet said was ultimately, completely, finally fulfilled in the conception of Jesus. We're going to see what it is that was said. Verse 23, behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means this, God is with us. We're going to take a trip back to about 735 B.C. From 735 B.C. to 715 B.C., the king of the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom of the people of Israel, was a guy named Ahaz. and He was by far really the worst king Judah had ever had. Now, after Solomon, his son Rehoboam couldn't keep the kingdom together and it split in two. And the northern kingdom was called Israel or Ephraim, and the southern kingdom was Judah. And the southern kingdom had the tribe of David, had David's line as king. That was the royal, actual, official people of God from the kingly standpoint. In the northern kingdom, none of those kings ever fully, completely worshipped Yahweh, the God of Israel. They, they worshipped him, but they blended the worship from the very beginning with the worship of Baalism. It was kind of a, a syncretism of, you know, picking and choosing. And so in the eyes of God, it was always evil all the time. It was never good. He would absolutely destroy the northern kingdom just a few years from the incident we're fixing to see in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom, for the most part, early on, did a good job worshiping Yahweh. But in time, some of the kings would blend it and mix them and match. And there, the father and grandfather of Ahaz had done a good job. But by the time Ahaz comes along, he becomes a disciple, a follower of the worship of Baal. And he blended Baalism into the worship of Yahweh. But not only that, he basically began to put an end to the worship of, of God. I mean, they had in his kingdom the city of Jerusalem with the temple. And he, he would at some point shut the worship of the temple doors. He would erect altars in the streets of Jerusalem. He would erect altars all throughout the hill country and the areas of Judah to worship the gods of the Baals. Not only that, he was a horrible king. He just stunk at it. He lost everything. He lost battles with the northern kingdom of Israel. He lost battles with the area of the people of Syria. He lost battles with the people of the Philistines. He lost battles with the Edomites. He always lost. During this time, the, the, the nation, the empire that kind of controlled this whole area was called the Assyrians. The Assyrians were to Israel and Judah of that day what the Romans were to Israel in the day of Jesus. And the head of Assyria was a particularly cruel guy named Tiglath-Pileser III. The king of Israel, a guy named Pekah, and the king of the nation of Syria, or Aram, a guy named Rezin, decided they wanted to rebel about 735-734 against Tiglath-Pileser and the Assyrians. Dumb move. The weakest nation in the area was Judah. And they came to Ahaz and said, you're going to help us fight or we're going to kill you. Ahaz, for all his faults, got one thing right. He understood that was a dumb decision to go rebel against Assyria. But instead of relying on Yahweh, instead of appealing to his God and maybe going to the prophets, he went and told the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser III, what was going to happen and asked for his help. At that point, 
a prophet named Isaiah comes into the scene. And he tells Ahaz in Isaiah chapter 7. You also see some of this in 2 Kings 16. He says, Ahaz, here's what's going to happen. God loves his people. He loves David. He loved your father. He loves your grandfather. They all served him, not because of you, but he's going to save the people of Judah. He wants you to understand it's going to be him and not the Assyrians. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. God is speaking to me right now. You ask for a sign so you'll know it's Yahweh. He'll give it to you. And Ahaz, pretending to be somewhat pious, says, well, I can't ask God to put God to the test. And in essence, he's referencing what we would see in in Deuteronomy 6 about don't put God to the test. Isaiah says that's not what that means. You know, that, that context of that passage means don't say you don't believe God or God, I don't trust you, prove yourself to me. To put God to the test is to force God to prove himself to you. This is not what it's talking about. Isaiah is saying, I know you struggle with your faith. You ask for a sign, God's going to strengthen you in your faith. And he says no, and Isaiah says we're going to do it anyways. Here's a sign. The sign will be this. There will be a virgin who will be with child. She'll give birth to a son whose name is Emmanuel, which means God's with us. Before he is old enough, in essence, I'm paraphrasing, to know the good from the bad, when he's at that age, God will deliver you and you will know it will be God. Matthew says that promise Ahaz received from Isaiah was fulfilled in Jesus. Now, you've got to understand, what did it mean back then to Isaiah and Ahaz? There's lots of debate. The word virgin is debated. The word virgin in the Hebrew is the word ama, which means a young woman of Marian age. There's multiple words that could have been used. It speaks of a girl who was young enough to get married. Now, when you lived back then, if you were young enough to get married, if you were a girl of Marian age, you were a virgin. It's a different time than today. It just was. Now, it could mean a woman already married, but later on, when the Jews translate Hebrew into Greek about 200 plus years before Jesus, when they do the thing called the Septuagint. And by the way, whenever the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament, they're almost always quoting the Septuagint, the Greek version. Greek's easier than Hebrew. It was easier than Hebrew 2,000 years ago. It's still easier than Hebrew. So they would quote from that. That's what they used. And in the Greek version, the Septuagint, the word used, Parthenos, is virgin. So they understood it as virgin. Before virgin... You know, the virgin will be with child. Who is the virgin? Some people think it's, you know, Isaiah's wife. Well, Isaiah's wife wasn't a virgin. And the child they had born, it could have been him. He had, i tell you what the child's name. He had like four really long, hard names. So just, we'll just call him Isaiah Jr. It wasn't him. Some think it was Hezekiah, the son of, of, of Ahaz. But he was already born. We don't even, we don't really, here's the thing. We don't know how it's fulfilled. It doesn't matter to us. Most likely, I think it means something like this. In a time it takes a virgin to get married, conceive, have the child, and the child to have be old enough to be weaned, then this will all be over. And by the way, by 732, within just a few years of this happening, that's exactly what happened. Pico was dead, Rezin was dead, and God delivered his people. He used the Assyrians, but he delivered. The real thing is, what does it mean in the day of Jesus? You need to understand that in the Old Testament, we say it promises something, and the New Testament brings it to fruition and fulfills it. It doesn't mean there was never a fulfillment in the Old Testament. It means that sometimes some of those prophecies had multiple fulfillments ultimately in Jesus. They were pointers. They were indicators. They were signs. Look here. Look here. Look here. You think God delivers you now? He did, but he'll deliver you more later on. Sometimes they didn't even know. 
They didn't even know what was being fulfilled by Jesus was a prophecy of the Old Testament until Jesus or the New Testament guy said it was like, oh, I didn't know that. This may very well have been one of those passages. Here's the thing. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how it was fulfilled in the time of Isaiah. What matters is what Matthew says about Jesus. He says that promise God made, that promise was kept in Jesus. Mary is the virgin who will have the child. And that child is conceived by the Holy Spirit. You're going to call his name Emmanuel. Jesus was never Emmanuel. No one called him Emmanuel. I don't know if anybody in the Old Testament actually called him Emmanuel. It's a symbolic name. Jesus was Emmanuel. He wasn't just called Emmanuel. He was Emmanuel. He is the God who was with us. He is the with us God. In John chapter 1, John gives his understanding of who Jesus is. He says, the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That's Jesus. He's the word. He was God. And then verse 14 of chapter 1 says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. That word became something it had never been before. Jesus had always been God, but he became something. He became flesh. And he would dwelt among us. He was the with us God. Verse 24 says this, And Joseph awoke from his sleep, and he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He obeyed him, took Mary as his wife. So he, being a righteous man, did exactly what God called him to do. In verse 25, And he kept her a virgin, and she gave birth to a son. And then he, because he was his legal father, named him Jesus, he kept her a virgin until she gave birth. And then the implication is she wasn't a virgin anymore. I know some of you come from a Catholic background. All of us have Catholic friends. You know, they believe in the perpetual virginity of Jesus, just, I mean, of Mary. Just understand there's no reason to believe that. None. There is nothing in the New Testament. There's nothing in the story of his birth in either Matthew or Luke to leads us to believe Mary and Joseph didn't have kids on their own. In fact, Jesus had brothers and a sister. Some would say it was from Joseph's previous marriage. There's no proof of that. Some say they were cousins. There's no proof of that. Early on, they took it to be that Mary and Joseph had kids. That's how it was always understood. Does it matter? Not a lick. It doesn't matter at all. But what matters is that the virgin birth is real. And what matters is that not only is it Mary, but it is also the Holy Spirit. Last week, I referenced the Holy Spirit, and I said I'd explain it more today. So I want to go back to a verse we looked at last week, plus a verse that is found in the Gospel of Luke. In both these verses, the Holy Spirit is speaking, the angel is speaking about the work of the Holy Spirit. The child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. That's what the angel said we saw last week. Then in Luke 1.35, telling Mary this, he says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the son of God. So obviously the conception is by Mary. And then the angel makes clear in both Matthew and Luke to both Joseph and Mary, the father is the Holy Spirit of God. It is the Holy Spirit. We have one God. But that God has three personalities, three ways of working among us, father, son, and Holy Spirit. And he says this, the son is going to come through the work of the spirit. And so you have then an important understanding that Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. He's not half and half. He's not, you know, 50% God, 50% man. You know, if you look around, we see children, you know, our church all the time. We love the kids. We look at a new baby, and you'll say things, oh, like he has his mother's eyes. 
He has his dad's, you know, balding head or whatever. And then when the child grows, we release here because parents try to, you know, blame. You know, the woman says, oh, look at him. Kid has your stubbornness and your mule-headedness. And he says, look, your kid has your tendency to spend all the money, you know, for no reason. I mean, you just go back and forth, you know. But it's not, it's not that the kid has two different anything. It's just one kid, one nature. Here's Jesus. He's not half and half. He's one. But in being one, he's fully God, fully man. He's fully all of that. So that, understand this, the virgin birth of Jesus guarantees us that our Savior is both God and man. It guarantees that. He is, therefore, qualified to save us. From the virgin birth, I want to talk to you about things that matter. In 1992, at the age of 31, I went to become the pastor of First Baptist Church in Laredo, Texas. I had been in ministry since 1980. I've been in ministry 12 years. I had pastored for a small part of that, but for most of it, I had been either a youth minister or an associate pastor. And I went in throughout my entire time in ministry, my convention, the Southern Baptist Convention, as a part of, had been in a battle, back and forth fighting. And in the early 90s, it came to a head, and the Baptist Convention did what Baptists always do. We split. <laughs> and the split was a convention called the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. Many of the people who started the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship were people I greatly admired and, expect, and respected. And one of them became the leader of that convention. Early in my time in Laredo, they had a meeting at Trinity Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. Trinity Baptist Church was pastored by Buckner Fanning, phenomenal pastor, great preacher, evangelist, and, and just a wonderful guy. I went to learn what this whole new group was about. I don't remember a single thing that was said, except one. When this person I respected deeply was asked, what do you believe about the virgin birth? Because we heard that not everyone believes the virgin birth. His reply was this. I absolutely believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. I do. But I don't think it's necessary for people to believe it. God could have done it some other way. And like, God could have done it some other way. What? Why would you say that? And at that moment, I realized this was not for me. Because here's what I know, and it, it kind of raised this question or this idea in my mind. Who gets to determine who God is, what God does? Who makes that decision? Because I always thought it was God. And now here we're saying that one of the most important things you can talk about, the very nature of Jesus, that he's fully God, fully man, that God could have guaranteed that some other way. Are you kidding me? This is not something minor. There's all sorts of things at Christmas we argue about, right, that are minor. It doesn't really matter. I'm like, one of the things I see now is people argue about is, uh, um, is it really a Christmas movie? You know, Die Hard, is it a Christmas movie? Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? And of course it's a Christmas movie. It happens at Christmas. It's a Christmas party. There's Santa Claus. It's a Christmas movie. You have to be completely ignorant to think it's not. But you know what? It didn't have to occur at Christmas. It could have occurred at 4th of July. It'd be a 4th of July movie. It could occur on Mother's Day. It'd be a great Mother's Day movie. I mean, what do you want? We're not talking about, did Jesus go from Judah to Jerusalem through Samaria, or did he cross to Jordan? Because that really doesn't, doesn't matter. When exactly in his ministry did Jesus give us the Sermon on the Mount? Was it just one time, or did he do it a bunch of times? It doesn't matter. But when it comes to the nature of Jesus, it matters. It matters. And from this, the virgin birth, we know that he is the one who is the one. And we know three other things that I want to share with you. 
He is the one who saves. Because he is God in the flesh, he is the one who saves. We, need, we saw this last week. We need someone to save us from our sin. That is our problem. It's sin. We can't do it. When he died on the cross, he died as a human, which means he died in our place and on our behalf. Flesh and blood needs to die for our sins. But when he died on the cross, he took our sins upon him. And no human can take another person's sins upon them. I can't take your sins and you can't take my sins. Only God can take someone's sins upon them and forgive them. He had to be God in the flesh. He had to be the one who saves. Not only is he the one who saves, he is the one who was with us. He is the with us God. Now, I recognize that before Jesus left, in John 14 through 16, he said, I'm going to leave, and there's someone who's going, there's another who's going to come, and that's another is the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, he said, the Holy Spirit is coming. In Acts 2, the Holy Spirit came. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, is not the one with us. But there is but one God, and in that one God, the Holy Spirit is the one with us. But that, we say that is Jesus with us through his Spirit. So he is always with you. When you are struggling in life, he is with you. When you are lonely in life, he is with you. When your life is hurting, he is with you. When your family comes apart, he is with you. And when you don't know who he is and you've never trusted him to save you, at the moment you need to give your life to Jesus, he is with you. He is the with you God all the time. And he is therefore also the one we worship. We're going to see this next week. With the, with the Magi, the wise men. But he is the one who worshiped. The word worship means to fall before. Proskuneo. There's multiple words for worship. But the m- most basic one, proskuneo, means to lie and fall before. And it is to recognize when you do that, that the one you fall before is the one who is greater than you. It is the one you serve. It is the one who you give your life to. He is the one you worship. And the reason He is the God who saves and the God who is with us and the God we can worship is because he is the one who absolutely is God. And the virgin birth guarantees that. So we worship, trust, and follow Jesus because he is God, God in the flesh, because he is the one. He is the only one. He is he. I began the message today by saying that Jesus, because of who he is, because of his nature, he is the one who is God. You've got to believe that. You've got to trust him because he's God. Listen, the virgin birth matters. And now that I've shared with you the truth of the virgin birth, you need to believe it. You can't say, well, I, don't, I don't think I believe that. Then you, know, you might as well not believe the resurrection either because you're in trouble. The fact of the matter is, he is the only one who can take your sin away. He is the only one who can be with you. He's the only one you can worship because of who he is. Before they worshiped Jesus for what he did, They worshiped him for who he was. They bowed before him, the Magi did, not because he was a baby, because we don't worship a baby. They bowed before him because he was the Lord. Before he did anything, they bowed before him because of who he was. Who he was matters. Some of you today need to give your life to Christ. You're going to do it because of who he is. He is God. He is man. 
In a minute, I'm going to be here. Others will be here. And if you've never trusted Christ to be your Savior, maybe you need to come and give your life to him. Do that. Maybe you want to come and join our church. Maybe you want to come have someone pray with you. Maybe you need to seek forgiveness. Maybe you need at this time in your life to confess the truth and the reality that Jesus is God in the flesh. But whatever else you do at Christmas this year, whatever else happens to your life, you need to be sure you know that Jesus is God. Don't you ever forget that. And don't you ever doubt that. When you walk away from here today, be sure. You follow, trust, serve, and worship the one who is God. And Father, as we come before you and celebrate the birth of Jesus, we celebrate the one who became God as flesh. He was always God, but he was never flesh. So he became something he never was before. He became God in the flesh. And we worship the eternal God. We praise the eternal Savior because of what he did in that moment at Christmas. Let us give our life to him completely and give you the honor and glory. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and you come?